welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. My name is Nicole Poznov, and I'm here with Ariel Frame, and we're here to interview Will Yinglin. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. How are you? Good, good. So tell us a little bit about your research. Um, my research uh, is focused on planetary science, um, geology. I'm a master's candidate, um, and... I'm working on the surface of Mars and uh, craters specifically, and then melt pools around around those craters. Um, so one of the one of the things I'm particularly looking back looking at is the distribution of these melt pools uh, around around the craters, um, for the most part. So I'll I'll ask uh, the easy first question, which is basically. Uh, you're saying something's melting on Mars. I kind of know Mars is this planet, but what's melting there? <laughs> sure, yeah. So when an impact happens um, that's going to form a crater, some of that, melt, some of that um, rock is melted and uh, even vaporized. But I'm looking at the, the melted aspect of it. And so what often happens is that this melt will um, pool within, within the crater, um, creating um, just different different layers uh, within the crater. And then I'm looking at the melt that flows outside of the crater um, and seeing where, where it pools up and where, how, what that can tell us about um, the, the impactor itself. Really, really cool. So for a rock to melt, how high does the temperature generally need to go? That's a good question. I am not too sure off the top of my head. <laughs> Those are pretty hot. Presumably yeah. really hot, though, right? <laughs> yeah, so it would have to be fairly hot and um, a fa- fairly high energy uh, impact in order for, for rock to melt, basically. Even vaporize. Yeah, instantaneously, exactly. Do we have these kind of things on Earth, too? Um, we, we may have had... Uh, melt on Earth like this um, long ago, but uh, with all the erosional processes, um, with water, wind, all of that, it's it's degraded the craters um, way past what we can see um, here on Earth, and so even the best candidates on on Mars um, is that it's there is some aeolian processes. There's some wind happening, and so. There is some erosional effect happening on these craters, um, and so we have to look at the really well-preserved ones in order to see these melt pools. Um, just to give you kind of give you a scale of how how like minute this detail is across across Mars. Uh, we also see melt pools on um, like Venus and Mercury and Ceres and um, all all sorts of different planetary bodies. Um, as well, and those don't have atmosphere, except for um, Venus, but um, yeah, so so um, so it seems like there's these melt pools you're saying they're they're on like lots of different planets, mm-hmm. and they these are like a signature of like something hit something hit mm-hmm. this planet and it yeah. hit must have hit it pretty hard to like i mean assuming it hard to to yeah. create this heat, so uh, what do we learn about um about a planet if it has more or less of these and are you interested in how many there are on uh, on Mars? Yeah, sure. So, um, 
there's what we what we can learn is that it's well, it's like one an outstanding question about whether um, how this melt moves across the surface. So on so on Venus, we see that there's um, the the direction of the melt is um, the distribution is affected by the impactor um, angle and the like where it came from, and so the melt often gets pushed out of the crater um, along the line of traverse that the impactor happened. Um, whereas on the moon, um, we see that it's the where the melt goes is dominated by the topographic uh, elevations. So like a topographic low um, would preferentially have the melt, the melt would preferentially travel through that topographic low rather than be dependent on the um, impactor's direction. So it generally tells you the elevations and topography of planets and the rock it's made of, right? Like that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, exactly. So what, what is uh, what's topography? And so topography generally refers to the 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 land the, the local land the how high it is how rough it is mm. um, all, all all of that just really like so broad, lo- broad. so when you said like um, something's happening with the with the when the when the impact comes in at like some some sort of different angle it depends on the topography and you say if it's high or low like what is a high or low topography sure well and and the 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 answer is not as like clear cut as i would like it to be but the (laughs) the the answer is dependent on your place within the solar system what the rock's made of like nick was saying um and if there's um even even temperature could be i think could be a um a factor for where this melt goes um so for uh, back to the location in the solar system, um, the the closer you are to the sun, the generally um, the faster, more energetic your impacts are going to be. So perhaps more melt would be created uh, in that instance. Um, so places like Mercury and Venus will have high, generally higher uh, impact velocities rather than Mars, which is uh, a little bit closer to the asteroid belt. All right, trick question. Going from the sun out, name all the planets. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Put them on the spot there. In our Going solar system. Going from the sun out. Okay, so Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Woo! Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Pluto's not a thing anymore? Oh, no. Oh, no. That's, <laughs> you got to catch up gone. on your yeah. readings. <laughs> uh, poor Pluto. Old yeah. news. Old news. <laughs> the public is so upset about Pluto, but we, we, have to, we have to change our classifications. Yeah. So how is all this research you're doing, is it important for future Mars missions, like 2020 and stuff, that when we're going back there? We are. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So we'll in twenty twenty twenty. Yeah, we'll we'll have a mission. I think that got pushed back to twenty twenty one. It's Is gonna right? get keep getting pushed back. <laughs> what a terrible name. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, is it? It can help us understand the underlying rock types and how how the general ge- geology moves and what can be sampled uh, in the future. Um, for future exploration. So that's kind of how it can tie into human exploration. 
Awesome. You know, um, I'm kind of interested. Uh, you're talking about like these like these pools. Like like I'm imagining you like you're on you're already there. You're on Mars. You're like check out this pool and you're like take a picture of it and you like go in a sample and you dip your feet in this nice little pool. <laughs> I, like it's real simple to study something on Mars, but then it occurs to me like we haven't been to Mars, so like how are you getting this data? <laughs> how are you studying something like that's so intricate on Mars? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Is that it's it's largely dependent on uh, remote sensing. So I use basically satellite images uh, from orbiters around Mars, um, uh, namely HiRISE, uh, which stands for the High Resolution Imaging Science Experiment, um, and that produces images that are good till. 25 to 25 centimeters per pixel, which is, I think, about on par with free satellite images uh, here on Earth. Um, so it's pretty, it's generally pretty good, and I think the best we have over anywhere in the solar system. But, and so the image footprint is very, very small, um, and you can really zoom in. It's basically just like a telescope looking down at the surface. Um, and so I can use I can use that uh, along with uh, MOLA data, which stands for Mars Orbiter Laser Altimeter, I believe, um, and that sends uh, laser laser pulses down to the ground and then receives them, and that gives us some information about the elevation that these uh, features happen uh, exist at. Um, and so combining both of those data sets, uh, I can create um, basically elevation and um, stereo uh, imagery uh, for, for, the, for this project and get, get topography data off of that and then further assess whether the melt pools exist there or not. No, I'm kind of I'm kind of picturing when I've like just been messing around on Google uh -huh. Google Earth or Google yeah Google Earth and you zoom in and you find your like childhood home and you can see <laughs> you can see like the fence that you built as a kid uh -huh. and the tree outside. Uh -huh. Well, they have that for Mars. <laughs> There's like a Google Earth but for Mars that yeah, you can just totally. go around. So and... that so that's kind of except some areas are really good on Google Earth. You can like. Get, see the depth and like some some areas are just flat but some areas like you zoom in close enough and you can see the buildings and they're like how high they are and how low they are and stuff yeah. like that and the mountains um, i'm assuming that that's kind of is that kind of what your data looks like <laughs> like you go and look that deep at, at mars 3D. you can see the craters you, you can see like oh well, that crater's like you know 50 feet from that other crater yeah sure so like to to some extent like yeah that's 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 basically it in a nutshell um for this for this data set it's about um, we can resolve like boulders and craters and other topographical um, features uh, to about one meter or so. So, so maybe a, a little bit more than three feet. But yeah, using our measuring tools, uh, spe specifically with, with ArcMap, which is a, a GIS tool for geographical information systems that's commonly used uh, here on Earth as well. Um, we're able to like measure distances and elevation and stuff like that. Yeah. Well, so I mean, Mars. I mean, <laughs> I guess it's it's so interesting to hear about like how we've advanced in different fields where like I'm like completely oblivious. I'm like, whoa, how do we have all that information? So like, 
we if we have that all that information from Mars and you've got the whole planet, like mm-hmm. we're pretty we're like a hundred percent sure there's nothing crawling around over there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm nodding my head because I studied life on Mars for part of my research. <laughs> Is there? Or maybe it's going to be really small. Nothing big, right? Because it's if we, we got some microbial. Some, okay. some people think there's like rats on Mars, or even even long ago they thought there was like a face on Mars. And that's like, like no, there's, there's none of that. But I mean, I would defer to Nick about... <laughs> <laughs> Go back to my other podcast where yeah. I was interviewed to hear more about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is, like, is there water? Like, I mean, we, I was, you know, uh, before, before the show, I'd mentioned, like, well, could it be water in the pools? And it was kind of like, no, no, it's melted rock. And I was like, whoa. But don't they have water there? Like, do you ever see any water? Does water have an effect on these melt pools or anything? Uh, is there there is, <laughs> as far as I know... Um, I would look at, um, there was recently a paper that came out about some, I think, possible water ice underneath uh, a polar ice cap, underneath a CO2 ice cap. Um, but, and there's wow. also uh, hydrated silicates, which just means like traces of water associated with like big impact craters on Mars too. So like we do think that early Mars did have water on it, which is why we see these traces now when an impact hits, because it's all kind of below the surface. So there is evidence for water. <laughs> yeah, and there's 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 also a feature that uh, called RSL for residual slope linear um, that um, some scientists also think is due to hydrated perchlorates, hydrated salts. Um, but I think more and more research is coming out that those are probably dry flows and really dependent on like the the season and the the winds and dust storms that happen. And yeah. Mars 2020 will actually have a really cool instrument on it that's I mean 2021, 2021. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it'll have a cool instrument that is going to actually like make water vapor and drill down into the surface and kind of prove or disprove our theories right now. About about life, about water. Oh, or about water. <laughs> It'll look okay. for evidence right. of like organics too, but sweet, sweet. Yeah. Um. So I mean, it kind of occurs to me that like if a if something hits, it's only gonna leave a crater if it's a solid, right? And then, but if 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 if, if like a, okay, if a meteor hit the ocean on Earth, mm-hmm. it doesn't leave a mark. It just fills in by water, right? So like if there was water, if there was ever water on Mars, then uh, anything that hit where that water was, if it's deep enough. Then it, there wouldn't be a crater, is that right? And what if what if you have a melt pool that's really big and something really small hits the melt pool? Because then you've got <laughs> liquid there and it may not leave a crater either. Can you like check, know if any of that happened? Yeah. So there's there's a lot to unpack there. So I may need reminders to help okay. me guide along the, for that question. Um, so um, particularly for like Earth. Um, if like a meteor hits a hits the ocean, uh, particularly the I think it's the Chicxulub um, meteor impact, the, the there's a base in there now, and I think that's it's been chalked up to um, uh, one of the extinction events um, for the for the dinosaurs, um, and so we don't necessarily see like a like a perfectly round crater, no, but um, even though it did most likely hit the water. First, it still created a a basin, which is basically a really low relief, really really wide, shallow bowl, um, perhaps with with 
concentric rings going outside of it. So there, there still was a mark left. And uh, on top of that, we also see evidence for like tsunamis and uh, other, other water-based and like uh, catastrophic events. Yeah, basically. yeah, exactly. Uh, so we that, that we see that evidence for that have hang, happened on Mars. No. no. <laughs> okay. I was like, okay, hold on, I'm getting just just for Earth. I think. Okay, so we have evidence of that from the past. Yeah, right? but on Mars, if there were water and a an impactor, is that, I'm not using that word correctly. <laughs> impactor. Yeah. Hits yeah. Uh, where there was water. Will we know what that looks like now and be like, okay, yeah, when it hit, it hit where there was water before, and now that that's what it looks like now. That's a good question. Um. My best answer is maybe, but probably not. Probably not. Yeah. Um, and so what? If, so what if it's a tiny little impactor that hits in a pool, in a men, in a, a melt, melt pool? pool. <laughs> Will we be able to tell if that happened? Yeah. So so there's there's a there's somewhat of a scale to melt pools, and so um, basically the larger the impact, um, there you you have to exceed a certain threshold. Uh, in order to create melt, in order to um, to to have enough energy to to melt the rock, um, to have this melt flow over the surface. But if you have something that's like really small, um, you may just get like a like a like a dust cloud or something like that. Like nothing um, that would that would create melt and like overprint the existing melt. From a small crater, you might have like two large impacts that happen, I don't know, like a billion years apart, um, that maybe overprint melt from one another. But um, then we we wouldn't really know all that much about the underlying melt at that point. Hmm. It would it'd mostly just be covered up. And this melt is solidified, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. absolutely. So it's not yeah. like a yeah, water, yeah, it's yeah. not pool of <laughs> liquid wait, wait. melt. So, so the melt pools are not. They've solidified now. They're now solid. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I yeah, was like totally, totally <laughs> not clear to me. I was like, well, there's like little pools yeah. of like, okay. I guess that's what uh, Kurt thought. Yeah. Uh, so that's what very... I thought when I heard pool. But I guess these are like, they were liquid yeah, it's at some a, point, but it's now a, we've. It's a very transient uh, like phase. And so like maybe, maybe it stays like hot or warm for like a couple thousand years or something like that. But on the geologic time scale, it's, it's pretty short. Yeah. Cool. So, um, I mean, these melt pools are pretty interesting, but um, I mean, I didn't even know they existed <laughs> a minute ago. And now you're studying like them in depth and, mm-hmm. and you know, wh- all about them. So how did you get interested in this? Like, how did you hear about this and, and, and why why here at Western? Yeah, sure. So um, there's one. I didn't know much about these melt pools, if anything, uh, before I started here. Um, so it was mostly my advisor, uh, Dr. Catherine Niche, um, who who assigned me the project, and and let me explore it as much as I wanted to, um, as well as working with Dr. Livio Tornaben, my my co-advisor. Um, he he's worked on melt in the past. Um, and he has a he has a paper about it. Um, but it's, I, I hadn't previously known too much uh, about melt pools. Um, and so how I sort of got into it was uh, I worked with HiRISE for, for two years as a student employee down in, at University of Arizona in Tucson. And so having that on my resume 
basically uh, was able to connect me with with Dr. Nish, and she she uh, picked me basically for to be a, a student here. And so that's that's more or less how I came to be at Western. As I as I applied, I talked to Dr. Nish, um, and then then here we are. But it was it was funny in my uh, Skype interview with Dr. Nish when I when I first talked to her face to face digitally um her her cat um her cat howard my favorite um he he like hopped up on on her laptop and so like the camera's like going up and down and like you can see the cat and like it's it's not a small cat it's like pretty hefty boy so he's like walking across the camera and I'm like who is this hello <laughs> so i was like okay we've got like a nice like I've got a I've got a good professor and she's got a cat and it's on Mars like this must be like a perfect match so I was super excited about that. Awesome! Yeah. And you yeah. said you were working in Arizona. What were you doing all the way out there? Sure. Yeah. So um, I moved to Arizona for my undergraduate degree um, from California. Is I got a physics and astronomy degree. Um, it took me five years to to complete and I really 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 love astronomy so planetary science was the most accessible aspect of astronomy that I could find at least in Arizona um, so the what I ended up doing was 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 joining high-rise and working with some of the the scientists there and getting getting relatively connected uh, to the planetary science through that community that that's the group that you that generates the, some of the data that you that you're using now, oh yeah right? absolutely yeah so yeah. you were you helped generate some of the data that you're currently using for your project yes and that's like super cool wow. uh, aspect so it was really cool to be on like the the instrument side where I'm like taking the raw data processing it and like creating usable products for scientists and now now I'm on the other side where I've I'm using this data and I'm I'm still creating it also to this day, um, but it's 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 cool to see like both sides happening, and so that kind of steers me towards um, where I want to go as as a career. I think so. Definitely working yeah. before starting your master's. You think that was a really good um, like option for you, like for most people. You think? Yeah. So in between my undergraduate degree and this graduate program, uh, I worked for the U U.S. Department of Agriculture. So a bit of a jump uh, from physics and astronomy, um, but I definitely found it like super helpful to um, one establish like good working habits to see like what the industry's like, also to find out more about like work-life balance. And at this job, it was really neat because there was a lot of overlap happening um, with my time working at High Rise because I I I learned how to how to fly a drone at the USDA and then uh, basically capture a bunch of like images of the crops and then use those images to do like remote sensing and. Uh, like create elevation data out of those images and so I was using a lot of the same software and I was using a lot of the same like coding programs like Python um, to do a lot of the, like similar stuff and so it was it was a really like unique uh, crossover um, and so so yeah I found that time very very helpful into 
how I'm going about grad school now. That's awesome. And you mentioned work-life balance. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about your hobbies, what you do outside of work? Sure. Yeah. Um, is the I think work-life balance is is super important. Um, is that it's it's really important not to get burnt out. And it's I think above all, most um, is you should enjoy what you're doing. And so if you if you're working like 12 hours a day, that that may be like a little too much. Like you barely have time to sleep at that point. And so um, one of the things I like to do is to, to get outside um, and um, just hike around and kind of view nature as it is, um, including uh, going birding is like my is my latest hobby. So um, I've got my pair of binoculars and I've been going around to all the local spots in in London um, and trying to find all all the birds I can basically. And hashtag so, birding. Yeah. <laughs> hashtag. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So the explanation of birding is like so simple. It's just like you look at a bird and that's it like <laughs> you just look for him and so i don't know there's something um I, I would almost say like childish like enthusiasm for it it's like i found one and then i have like my own like app um that i downloaded it's like the autobahn app that run in the u.s um and so i can like match match bird with like a color it's like size and like what it's doing to see like what the name of the species is and I can like log it and everything like that, so I can have it for future reference. But yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun, and it's it's like Pokemon free. in real life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you gotta catch them all. I'm like, totally. I just started playing Pokemon Go again, and like it's taking over my life. Mm, yeah, yeah, it definitely took to over stop. my life for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's what, cool. What level did you end up getting to? Oh, what am I on now? I think yeah. I just just hit level 33. Ooh, oh, nice. my God. So. My level's embarrassing compared to that. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I think I got up to, like, 29. So, like, it's, it's definitely a grind. Team instinct on the way. Um, <laughs> I, I can't even remember what, what the name of the team is. I'm the red team. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Pokemon. That's fine. Well, no Work-life balance. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, I don't know, but, like, I found Pokemon Go to be, like, a very, um, to, like, fall in line with, like, being outdoors, and that's, like, that's, like, the, the one thing I've, like, had, um, coming up and up again, um, was, like, I like to go hiking, I like to go, like, stargazing, like, Pokemon Go was just, like, an extension of that, uh, at the, at the time when it came out, and so it was, it was really interesting, and so now, instead of Pokemon Go, it's, it's birding. <laughs> Have you been to Medway Forest yet? I don't think so, no. Oh, it's a beautiful forest. It's actually, like, really close to Ontario Hall, like, the residence. And okay. it's so nice. It's kind of like a London secret that, like, most students don't know about. But Ooh, okay. I definitely suggest going there. And now it's out in the world. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oops. And, and also here at Western, we have, like, one of the, the, the most well-known, or I don't know about out how many bird facilities there are, but it's a fairly well-known bird uh, research facility, AFAR. Oh, yeah? I don't know uh, what I don't remember what AFAR stands for. It's avian something uh-huh. <laughs> research, um, but they've got this tube where you can have a bird flying in the tube because the air there's like air flowed through. So you can see a bird flying, but it's like still, and you can like research it while it's flying, and then like 
put in environmental conditions in this tube. So um, it's pretty cool. So it's like a bird wind tunnel type it's, of thing? I think it's called a tunnel or something. I think it okay. is a wind tunnel. And that's <laughs> at Western? Yeah, it's here at Western at AFAR in the facility. It's like behind the, the, the keys building where you get your key. For, huh. for rooms it's like That's down so the hill cool. from there I, I like i swear i think program. you can just go in and like ask like hey like i heard about this is cool like can, can you give me a tour so if you want to learn about like yeah birds <laughs> they'll totally. like tell yeah. you yeah. more Absolutely. they can probably give you some insight on like more stuff with birding <laughs> yeah there's and there's the in the in bgs and the bio, biology and Biological Ge- and geological science. Yes. I'm also in that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that there's a lot of, like, taxidermied, like, birds. Like, and you, see, you can see, like, ospreys and um, other other types of things. So it's always always nice to see that, like, indoors. I don't know. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Will. Uh, if anyone wants to learn about you or your supervisor, how would they get in contact with you? Sure, yeah. So my website is willyingling.com. Dot com y i n g l i n g, um, and also my Twitter handle is Mars underscore Mapper, um, and that's that's where you can find me on social media. That's awesome. Thank you. Uh, this has been Gradcast, uh, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. If you would like to be involved with the show or get in contact with us, email us at gradcastradio at gmail you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. If you would like to listen to us, we're on CHRW 94.9 every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Also, you can listen to us on all your podcasts on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Alternatively, select podcasts can be watched on YouTube at Gradcast Radio. This episode has been with our guest, Will Yingling. Uh, it was hosted by myself, Nicole Poznov, and Ariel Frame, and it was produced by Gavin Talmetti. Thank you so much. Have a great night. The Gradcast theme tune has been composed for us by Matthew Becker.